I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Today's guest is Molly McDonough, owner of McDonough Media LLC and the former managing editor and publisher of the ABA Journal, where she worked for 18 years. Molly, thanks so much for joining us on Access to Justice Week on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jack. I'm excited to be here. Uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, Molly, first of all, I'd love to ask you what's on your mind most right now? Well, uh, you know, the, the week is perfect for me. Access to Justice is, has been somewhat of an obsession for me, especially since the pandemic. Even, but even before then, it was yep. uh, one of the, the areas I, I really wanted to work in um, after leaving the ABA. It's, uh, it was a passion area for me at the journal, uh, access to justice stories um, and in related stories, second chances, some of the big projects we tackled uh, while I was at the journal uh, really um, made me want to dig deeper into um, coming up with solutions uh, instead of just reporting on the problems. That, that's great. And I, uh, as long as I've, I've known you and I've been in the legal industry for uh, over 12 years now, which is hard for me to believe, but when I, when I entered the industry, you were one of the first people uh, I met. I, I think it was at a beer for bloggers at, at ABA Tech Show way back in the day. And uh, as I mentioned in the intro, you were at the ABA Journal for, for 18 years, which is, which is incredible. Ended your career there as the, the editor and the, the publisher. And over the, the course of that trajectory, when did you first get it, find yourself getting drawn into access to justice issues? And, and what, what were some of the, the patterns you, you saw maybe over the course of your career? So, you know, I was covering uh, rural uh, communities in South Carolina, and uh, it was probably my first, well, it was my first, um, uh, my first dealings with the ABA during that time, um, partly looking for model rules for lawyer conduct, a lot of lawyer misconduct stories in general newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> you know, and I, I was covering advertising and things like that. And I, I started to really um, find what the legal services um, corporation was doing to be fascinating and underappreciated, especially in rural communities. Uh, so I was even I was covering LSE back then. Um, it probably helps that you know I, I I said offline a little earlier that my mother is a retired administrative law judge for the state of California. You know right. she was a paralegal for legal aid. Um, <laughs> before so you she had went some context there. Right. You know, I, I, I kind of grew up as a legal aid child um, <laughs> and, uh, and passionate about access to justice and, and uh, making sure that uh, vulnerable populations aren't left behind. So, so tell us a little bit about, it sounds like a very early interest in, in access to justice as a theme. What have some of your learnings been about what the, the access to justice landscape looks like from you know, maybe framing it pre-COVID-19 and how you're seeing COVID-19 really impact access to justice now and what challenges you, you think might lie ahead? Sure. I, so, 
before COVID-19, we were facing an access to justice crisis. Uh, you know, we already were experiencing a massive gap in um, access by uh, low income and moderate income uh, families um, and, and individuals. And, you know, that's one of the areas that I've wanted to focus on a, a lot uh, since leaving the ABA is that I, I think it's underappreciated for the profession too, um, the access gap for middle income um, Americans um, from my perspective. Uh, and it's, it, to me, it's a gap and an opportunity for lawyers to mm -hmm. fill that gap. And I'm interested in how tools, technology tools can be used to um, help lawyers be more efficient and uh, deliver services in ways that um, help them make a living, um, but at the same time provide much greater access to many more people who um, I, I think the common LSE numbers are that, you know, some like 85% of the population isn't getting the, the services they, they need or even know that they have a legal issue that uh, right. could be resolved with, with some assistance. And where, where do you see, there, there's so many ways to tackle uh, this, this problem. It is a, a broad problem with so many facets and, and elements contributing to the, the access to, to justice gap. I, I think when we talk about access to justice, we sometimes leap immediately to pro bono uh, services and, and helping the, the really underprivileged. And that's certainly one element of the discussion, but can you talk about how you think about access to justice in a, in a more holistic way and, and what the spectrum of legal needs looks like and maybe how you think law firms could be thinking differently about delivering legal services to those broad spectrum of needs? Uh, yeah, sure. So I, again, like back to that whole area that, um, you know, it's, it's every access point. Um, yeah. You know, one of the problems I see is that um, that um, there's a, there's been an increasing complexity of the of the system um, and a data and the system the justice system is so dated in its approach um, compared to what uh, the consumer population is used to dealing with in terms of services and benefits. So you know one of the problems that I I see is that is that courts are and the justice system is so behind in how it communicates. Uh, solutions to people that no one e that many people don't even know how to access the courts. So, and that applies to anyone at any level. Um, so, you know, even if you're even if you have the the money to hire a lawyer, do you know, you know, where what part what type of lawyer to hire, or you know where to go to even find a lawyer? There's so many um, barriers to to um, getting that entry point into the justice system. Um, for every, for to me, it's for everyone. And you asked earlier, as you pointed about, out, about, even sometimes recognizing that you have a legal issue that a lawyer can right, help you with. Right, right. And so the, you know, since COVID nineteen, one of the things that I've seen the happen the most is this kind of explosion of um, collaboration. And it's like a, it's a, it's almost like a revelation in the legal industry in the legal profession, legal industry, that collaboration is possible. <laughs> Every single right. um, call I've been on, uh, people say, uh, you know, the silver lining for this is that we're talking now. 
Um, and it's and I've been thinking a lot about that. And it's not that they weren't talking before, uh, but they're the conversations now have a purpose um, and they're all um, urgent and solutions driven. So everybody is really paying <clears throat> much closer attention to the, exper the, the experimenting that's happening now, I think. And, <clears throat> and really, you know, I, I, I heard, I was just catching up with a, um, a briefing that the National Center for State Courts has been hosting uh, on opening the courts uh, for jury trials and the experimentation going on. And there's just so much happening all over the country. Uh, so it, it's really exciting to see all that. And, and people who are in their own areas at the cutting edge would each come on the, on their, when it was their turn saying, I, I took so many notes and you could tell they're like literally just getting finished taking notes before it's their turn. <laughs> right. Right. So it's, it's really interesting to see that, that dynamic and that energy. And when you talk about collaboration, where are you seeing that that happen? What 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 parties are you seeing get together and and solving problems together that maybe, as you pointed out, maybe weren't? It's not the case that they weren't collaborating before, but there's maybe an urgency and a solution orientation that COVID nineteen is is demanding that didn't exist prior. You know, I, so before pre COVID nineteen you would hear uh, people say that uh, they, every, everyone fears change and, and uh, adoption to, to new technologies is really slow. The, all of that has just been washed away. So, uh, and I'm sure you've heard a million times, you know, we've seen in 10 weeks, 10 to 15 years of, of advancement um, yeah. in technology. I, I mean, and, and for me, what I would love to see come out of this is that this created um, is creating a renaissance uh, in legal services. Um, that this is a time of just kind of massive change and experimentation. And one of the things that I'm um, particularly happy to see is that consistently I'm hearing judges that I never would have heard um, come them say before that they're not going back to pre-COVID um, operations. They've learned so much so quickly about how to make their courts more efficient and accessible um, and easier for lawyers and judges and litigants. I, you know, I, one of the call that I was just referencing, uh, one of the lessons for that first um, Zoom trial out of Texas a couple weeks ago, um, was the, it was a jury trial was that um, the lawyers were surprised that the um, witnesses were, and the, both the witnesses were more comfortable with their answers and the jurors were more comfortable in, um, during questioning and jury selection. Interesting. So they, they were more forthcoming with their answers and seemed more relaxed, less nervous. It was easier for the lawyers to gauge um, the, the, um, the, kind of personalities and their feel get a feeling for the jurors. So I, I, I want to explore the, the courts aspect of access to justice a, a little bit. Can, can you talk about from your perspective, what some of the, the barriers that the old operating model for courts presented and, and maybe how you're seeing technology fit in here and help make courts more accessible than they were previously? 
Sure, sure. And, um, and a lot of this, and, and I, I've heard similar things from uh, courts in, in Canada as well, but the, um, there are huge distances uh, that, that we require people to travel to come to court on a single day. Um, and, and, you know, for docket driven type court processes, you know, we have, you know, sometimes hundreds of lawyers and, um, and their clients coming into the court for routine hearings. Um, that should go away after this, um, or, you know, in this process. We, we should now know enough to know that we can handle a lot of those hearings um, remotely, uh, those status checks, those, um, those hearings that, that are all tied to, um, you know, all, everybody showing up in a single day, spending hours sometimes traveling to get to court. Um, you know, those, can, those should all, to me, go back to, I mean, not go back to, go to a new form of, of delivery um, and, and meeting, whether that's, you know, teleconference or video or paper even. Um, I, I'm, I'm hearing that I think in Alberta, they're doing some, you know, just paper decisions where, um, um, for, where paper is mailed or, or shipped and then sh and decisions are sent back. And, it, and okay. what, I'm, what I'm hearing from other judges is that, you know, you can do that for a vast majority of the cases um, and take those off of your dockets. Um, I think in uh, Miami, one of the judges was saying that they're, um, they're planning the, uh, all of their case management, and this is common in so many places, all, all of their case management for all of their cases is based on a docket schedule. So you, you, know, you set a trial date and then everything, you kind of back up everything right. that goes before that. Well, why do, why do you have to do that in 85% of your cases? So 85% of your cases don't make it to trial, but you're, you're putting everybody through 100% of your cases through the same process. So right. if you can take out 85% and only start to deal with the ones that become problematic and, and need to be done in person, then you free up an enormous amount of resources and time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting and it fits into what we're seeing a little bit at a macro level as well, where so much of how we're thinking about the the evolution of of work, even outside of the courthouses, is thinking about how do we shift synchronous communication to asynchronous communication, and it feels like the courts are kind of undergoing that change as well. They, they've very much got a tradition of synchronous communication, synchronous ceremonies, saying everybody needs to show up at this time and place and will we'll make a decision or will advance the case. Something will happen. And, and maybe the realization, I think as we're seeing in many other areas of work, more generally, maybe this meeting doesn't need to be a meeting. Maybe this can be a written document that we collaborate on asynchronously. Maybe this can be something we talk about in a Slack channel. Maybe this can be a, an email thread and we can have the same outcome, but not demand that everyone show up in a room at a specific time and place the way that uh, we did pre-COVID-19, pre and that feels like maybe one of the, if we're hopeful, one of the enduring changes we'll, we'll see on the other side of this crisis. Well, and, you, and your, your, your operation, is because you have so many different offices too, and you guys have all, always found ways to stay connected. And uh, so right. do you feel like that that's kind of kept 
you ahead of the game too, or or more prepared to be able to manage through this this crisis? I, I feel like there's a couple of things that that really set us up for the transition. We we have over 500 employees worldwide now, and and five worldwide offices that we shut down back on March 13th. And I, I think thanks to the fact that we. Uh, we drink our own champagne at Clio, as I like to say, and, and we, we, we use only cloud-based services to run the company, everything from our phone system to our, uh, our email systems and calendaring and, and code deployment systems for our product team are all cloud-based. So that technology infrastructure was, um, was pre-existing. Um, I was pretty amazed when we had our first day of work from home the following business day. Uh, we, we didn't miss a beat and I was really surprised by just how how much agility there was across the organization and I, I think what we found is exactly this uh, this what we felt we needed to get in a room and needed to get in a meeting to do even though we were fairly distributed um, I would describe our culture as probably office first you know and a bit of a preference for being in the office with remote employees or even the remote office dialing in having a little bit of a a second class experience and when you make everybody remote it it levels the playing field in a really interesting way and um i, I think if i if i tie that back to what you were commenting on with uh, the jury and others feeling more comfortable and more at ease with this this kind of a zoom based environment I do think it, it levels the playing field a little bit you you don't have uh, some of the dynamics that can actually be fairly intimidating in a physical courtroom you know go away and I, I'd love your perspective on that as well is that something you'd agree with Yes. So, and it's really interesting. I, I think I was, it makes perfect sense, but I was really surprised and I'm extremely excited that so many of these courts aren't just trying these new things. They're, they're um, doing surveys and testing and, you know, really taking a deep look. Um, and I think I mentioned in Texas, they, they asked the jurors and they asked, they asked jurors that had previously served what they thought, and they preferred this remote experience. And this was for a non-binding case. They're, they acknowledge they're not ready for a binding trial. Um, they have this opportunity, the system there, where they can have a non-binding trial. And the jurors had already been um, qualified to serve, so you know they didn't have to go through um, a, a big, a, to evaluate a new big panel. Right. Um, but they, they um, the jurors said that they one of the things they liked was they, they got to see the lawyers more clearly, the witnesses more clearly, and they got to see the evidence more clearly. In the past, you know, they could barely see and they had trouble hearing and, you know, everything was, was much easier to manage. Um, and I've heard a lot of judges say, because, it, because uh, family cases and emergency um, uh, family cases are, are still ongoing, um, at, in most jurisdictions, and I'm, I'm hearing a lot about uh, children and witnesses who normally would be really shy to speak are um, much more comfortable in this environment and uh, more more forthcoming with information. So I think that's really interesting, and I and I've heard uh, similarly that lawyers are feeling like they get equal attention. <laughs> right. Everybody's screen is the same size. <laughs> right. 
nobody's taller than somebody else or, or yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. It is, it is really a, something that levels the playing field and, and hopefully lets uh, the facts stand on their own in a bit more of a clear way. Um, I'm wondering on the other side of this uh, equation, do you see, have you had conversations with judges or others that, that feel like they want to go back to the old way of doing things that they're not able to achieve what they want to from a zoom call. I've, I've heard uh, secondhand admittedly uh, anecdotes of some, some judges, for example, commenting to the effect that they, they need to see somebody in person to judge their character. They need to see the whites of somebody's eyes and, and that goes away through a, through a zoom call. Have you heard, similar kind of feedback in the conversations you've had? I have, and, and for depositions uh, too. Uh, I, I think, you know, there are, are skills that can be learned and technologies that can be improved to help with that. Um, but I don't disagree that in many cases, in-person is, is still better. Um, and, and I think in-person um, at a certain stage is critical um, now, I mean, still. Um, when the stakes are high, lives are on the line, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I just, there's the biggest issue of right now that the courts are, are grappling with is how to handle felony jury trials um, and, and how to manage that safely. Um, Oregon has been continuing to do jury trials and they're doing some, uh, one of the, one of the counties in, in Oregon is doing some interesting things with social distancing to make sure the jurors are, are really, um, separated. Uh, they're using two large courtrooms. They do, you know, one to hold the case and then, and another one, uh, for, deliberations and they've already started looking at like down the street at the state capitol and a university setting and a training a firefighter training facility where they're going to try to get deliberation space so they can <laughs> they wow. can still have social distancing and continue um, to hear and manage cases but in a safe way um, you know I'm hearing a lot of um, um, managing the the um, the spread of COVID and not preventing it. It's more, right. it's, you know, right. dealing with the fact that it's here for now and we don't have a vaccine. Uh, so, and we can't stop the courts. So. Very interesting. Um, when, when you think about access to justice and, and maybe some of the ways that you think that we might come on the other side of this crisis with improved access to justice, or at least the knowledge of the tools that can help increase access to justice. We've talked about a, a few ways that, uh, that we're seeing improvements. We're seeing the courts warm to technologies that can, can help them scale and maybe even wholesale changes in process that can help them hear more cases and, and provide more accessibility to the courts. Um, are there other and again, you've got a, a broad experience to draw from. Are there other things that the legal profession should be thinking about uh, to help improve access to justice, either in the context of COVID-19 or otherwise? Um, so I, I think from, for just for anyone who wants to be involved, like you said earlier, it's more than um, pro bono is critical and volunteering is critical, but also learning, um, training, 
listening, um, really being part of this collaboration uh, conversation, uh, being willing to uh, learn and listen to how other industries have resolved problems you're seeing. Um, you know, I, I, I'm still starting, and I hear innovators and futurists talk about this so much. Uh, it's, it's very frustrating to watch a, an, an entity or a part of the justice system treat a problem like it's unique to them right. um, and, and solve that from scratch. And so I, and one of the things I think this, is, this time period has created is this urgency to break that silo and to see what other people are doing and to learn from them, um, learn from mistakes, be willing to share things, the failures is so important. Um, so, you know, I, I think for anyone involved in the legal profession, kind of being able to be part of those conversations, being as a, as a lawyer active in your um, you know, bar associations or other organizations that are looking for not just talking about problems, but looking for solutions and common, identifying common problems and solutions and partnering with uh, people who are solutions oriented is, is what is a, an important way to to resolve access to justice issues and for people and that i'm going to just i'll i'll take it back to ahead. your book too just you know doing uh doing some some really looking at at you know how your clients uh respond and and you know what did it what are the pain points for them in dealing with with uh with you as a lawyer you know, right. making sure you're having those conversations with your clients and the people you want to be your clients and making sure you're not creating barriers. Yeah, working back from their their needs as the starting point for for how you're delivering your legal services. And I do think that it, it's the access to justice conversation sometimes uh, is, is too narrow. And, and when we think about it as a broader product market fit problem almost between the way lawyers in general and legal services in general are delivered, there's a huge product market fit problem, whether it's the 77% the number from the World Justice Project or the 85% number you cited from the Legal Services Corporation. Uh, we, we see this, this massive mismatch between supply and demand of legal services. And I think at the end of the day, an important message for lawyers to hear is there's an unbelievable amount of opportunity out there if you can figure out how to tap into that that latent legal market which is a vast majority of the overall market waiting for lawyers and and law firms to figure out how to solve their needs and how to um, how to deliver an experience that that caters to their specific situation yeah yeah absolutely so um, Molly, I'd love to to end. You know, maybe talking about if if people want to get involved, you've got a broad spectrum, you know, of organizations, and you've mentioned some of the places you're seeing great work happening. Are there resources you would you would send people to websites or or organizations you'd encourage them to get engaged with if they want to help advance access to justice? Uh, I do. I think the the um, Legal Services Corporation. Uh, is is doing amazing work on the civil legal side, uh, in particular uh, right now. They're and they're um, well, they're brief. They're having regular briefings, um, and I think they're doing them through Zoom and Facebook Live. Uh, so I've kind of 
um, made sure I, I get notified whenever they have a new one of those. Okay. Um, and then I'm really impressed with the, there, there's a rapid response team from the Conference of Chief Justices and I can't remember, the Conference of State Court Administrators through the National Center for State Courts, so many acronyms. <laughs> um, so, um, I, and I, I heard this group <laughs> called out on the ABA task force around COVID-19 called out yesterday for just doing truly excellent work though. So I've, I've, I've heard them mentioned as well. Yeah, this in the, 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 I was just struck today about, you know, how much effort has gone into, if you looked at the National Center for State Court pages um, three months ago, the resources just were, were not, um, were not there. And they have just pulled, um, pulled out all the stops and they're, they're, they have tons of data. They've been tracking every closure order they can get their hands on. They've been tracking every single um, jury uh, status order by, so you can see the whole United States in color, like who's opening in June, July, wow. August, indefinite closures. You know, I mean, they have all these tools and, but my favorite parts are the, the webinars where you get to hear, you know, boots on the ground experiences uh, from courts and what they're trying and what's not working. Um, and having those discussions and taking questions. Um, and they have thousands of people on these calls. I could not believe it. It was like, I think um, one of their last calls had 3000 people on it. Wow. Um, and they're mostly court administrators um, when they do the polling. It's really, it's, it's, it's good to see. It's good to see this, this level of collaboration and learning happening. And I, I'm, like I said before, I'm, you know, I'm hoping this is leading to kind of a renaissance and, in legal services, but those two organizations, I think, have really stepped up in leadership. In um, you know, and then I, I think a lot of the bar associations, state, and and of course the ABA, uh, is doing a lot of work in this area, making sure that resources are are um, are easy to find. Well, we'll make sure we have a, a link to the the first two resources you you mentioned there in the show notes, Molly, but. Uh, um, this has been a wonderful conversation. It was great catching up with you. Um, and, and before we leave, I was wondering if you have any parting thoughts for our listeners. Um, and other than thank you so much for, for having me. I, I know these are really scary times. Um, and at the same, and I think what's heartening is seeing how uh, many people are coming together to work on, on, on solutions and ways to keep the um, justice system uh, working. I, I agree. I think the level of collaboration is is really unprecedented and the willingness to experiment is so heartening to see. And it feels like we've got permission to experiment maybe in ways that that we didn't feel like we as an industry had previously. So it's, I, I, I'm optimistic and I think share some of your optimism around some of the enduring impacts we might see from all of this. Uh, great talking to you, Molly. Thanks again for joining us today. All right. Take care. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com. 